This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. Bono bikes badly. Neil Young is 74. Rod Stewart ruins sex. Rock stars and airplanes. The Doors get a record deal. John Lennon and Elton John make a deal. Ronnie Wood stops traffic with his legs. And never mind the Sex Pistols. That and much more looking back in music history for the week of November 10th. All right, here we go. It's this week back in 1973 that Elton John started an eight-week run at number one on the U.S. album charts with Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. It was his third U.S. number one album. Now, the album, which had the working titles of Vodka and Tonics and Silent Movies, Talking Pictures, is his best-selling studio album with worldwide sales of over 30 million copies. That's for one album. Actually, it was a double album, and it was recorded in France. Now, the album contains the Marilyn Monroe tribute, Candle in the Wind, as well as three successful singles, Benny and the Jets, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, and of course, the title track. Listen to this. Bernie Taupin wrote the lyrics in two and a half weeks for the entire album, and then Elton John composed most of the music in just three days. It took him about two weeks to record the album. That is a lot of cocaine. David Bowie was number one on the charts in 1975 with Space Oddity. Now, the track was first released in 1969 to tie in with the Apollo 11 moon landing. It was inspired by Stanley Kubrick's film 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was released in 1968. By the way, Rick Wakeman, who later went on to be the keyboard player with the band Yes, he was a session musician at the time, and he provided the synthesizer backing for the song. Now, the release was timed by the record company to align with the moon landing, and so Bowie was considered, for a time, a novelty act, like he made the song for the moon landing, and that's how they promoted it. Well, he would not have another hit for three years, so at the time, he was known kind of as a one-hit wonder novelty act. Now, the BBC, which is the radio for uh, the United Kingdom back then, waited to play the single until after the astronauts during the Apollo 11 moon landing returned back to Earth safely because they didn't want to be playing that song and those guys didn't make it. Bowie would later revisit his Major Tom character in the songs Ashes to Ashes, Hello Space Boy, and Black Star. This week back in 1966, The Doors officially signed with Elektra Records in a deal for the band to produce seven albums. Now, the band also reluctantly agreed to release their single, Break On Through, as their very first single. Here's why. The lyric, she gets high, she gets high, she gets high, well, they changed it to she gets. They cut out the high part. If you listen to the original uh, deal that was released on the first album, they cut off the high part. Now, you listen to later remixes, and the high is put back in. They did that to make sure that radio stations would play the song on the air because saying she gets high back then, well, that was just terrible. Obviously, the album went on to create a massive success for The Doors, and they released many albums after that. And by 1969, Jim Morrison and The Doors were huge and making a ton of money. Well, that creates problems for Jim Morrison because in 1969, the FBI in Phoenix arrested Morrison for drunk and disorderly conduct aboard an airplane. He was uh, on his way to see a Rolling Stones concert with the actor Tom Baker, and he had been drinking and annoying the stewardesses. Now, this uh, scene is actually played out pretty well 
in the Doors movie by Oliver Stone in the early 90s. Uh, the pair spent the night in jail and were released on $2,500 bail. Obviously, there's a problem with rock stars in airplanes because it was later on in 2014 that the Cranberry singer Dolores O'Riordan was arrested following an alleged air raid incident on a flight from the United States to Ireland. She was detained after a stewardess was reportedly attacked in the business section of an Aer Lingus flight from New York to Shannon, Ireland. Now, yes, Aer Lingus sounds funny. Go ahead and laugh. But it's an actual airline uh, that flies all over the United Kingdom. Well, anyway, during the flight, she grew verbally and physically abusive to the crew. Now, Dolores O'Riordan is not a very big girl, but she's Irish and you get drinking. Whoa, look out. Well, when police were arresting her, she resisted arrest, of course, and she reminded them that her taxes paid their wages. And that's not something you ever want to do with the police. And she was shouting, I'm the queen of Limerick. I'm an icon. And she head-butted one of the uh, officers, and she spit on another. Now, later, she told the media that she had been stressed from living in New York hotels following the end of her 20-year marriage. The judge, hearing her case, agreed to dismiss all charges if she apologized in writing to her victims and then wrote a 6,000-pound check to the court poor box. Back in 2014, U2 singer Bono was involved in what doctors called a high-energy bicycle accident, which means he was hauling ass on his bike and he crashed. He was rushed to a New York uh, hospital in their emergency department and underwent five hours of surgery. It messed up his hand and his legs and his ribs, and the injury forced U2 to postpone a planned week-long residency on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Now that is major, major promotional tool to promote a new album. Luckily, because there was so much heat on Bono's accident, that that actually worked as publicity for selling their new album. It was 1977 that the Sex Pistols went to number one in the United Kingdom with their debut album, Never Mind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Now, the punk group's only number one album was met with a lot of controversy upon its release, of course. Now, the first problems involved the allegedly obscene name of the album. It resulted in the prosecution of the manager of a record shop uh, for having displayed the album in a window. By the way, bullocks means balls. Anyway, more outrage was sparked by the lyrics of songs like God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK. And of course, today, it is a punk classic. Looking back to 1990, Rolling Stones, Ronnie Wood broke both his legs after his car crashed outside of London. Now, Wood and his family were driving just west of London when the accident occurred, making their way home from the funeral of a friend when they hit an oil patch on the highway during a rainstorm and ended up swerving out of their lane. You do want to talk about a bad day. First a funeral, then a car wreck. Well, then it gets worse because Ronnie Wood who had been riding while his wife drove, got out of the car to try and avert disaster, only to end up risking injury. Now, the car skidded broadside in the fast lane, so he's blocking traffic, his car was, in the fast lane. So he jumps out in a panicked effort to prevent oncoming traffic from smashing into his car and his family. So he did the pretty much unbelievably stupid thing of getting out of the car and standing 
in front of the car, waving his arms up in the air to alert oncoming cars that they were in trouble. And that's when things went from bad to worse. Suddenly, staring headlights in the face, Ronnie Wood remembered jumping over the trunk of his car only to end up being clipped in the ankles after the car he'd been trying to avoid slammed back into him. He said the kids had some cuts and the wife was okay, but he was tossed into the gutter and didn't want to look down at his legs. He thought, that's it, I've lost my legs. Uh, but he didn't. He actually broke two bones in one leg and one in the other and was in cast for about three months. He says his ankle still hurt to this day when he's jumping around on stage with the Rolling Stones. But considering what might have happened, it's a small price to pay. Neil Young turned 74 this week. He was born November 12, 1945, a Canadian singer, songwriter, and guitarist. He was a member of Buffalo Springfield. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and of course, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, and a great solo career. Now, Neil's had one hell of a ride so far, right? His dad was a journalist and sports writer, uh, called, and his name was Scott Young. He's considered to be a national icon in Canada. That's right, that's Neil's dad. Now, for a short period, in 1966, Neil shared a, uh, an apartment in Toronto with the funk master Rick James, and yes, they did a lot of drugs. In the late 1960s, at a gathering at the house of Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson, Neil was introduced to Charles Manson. Yeah. In his autobiography called Waging Heavy Peace, uh, Neil recalls Manson picking up a guitar and uh, really impressing the room with his off-the-cuff Dylan-esque style. This is Charles Manson we're talking about. Now, after finding Manson didn't have a recording contract, Neil Young recommended that uh, the label called Reprise check him out. Yeah, Neil Young tried to get Charles Manson a record deal. Well, it didn't work out because the Sharon Tate murders occurred shortly thereafter, making Charlie Manson's name known the world over. After writing Southern Man in 1970 and Alabama in 1972, he was confronting the history of slavery and Jim Crow in the American South. Neil sparked Leonard Skinner to write the song Sweet Home Alabama in 1974, which includes the line, I hope Neil Young will remember, a Southern man don't need him around anyhow. Though it sparked a lot of controversy, and of course people chose sides. Well, Neil Young is right. Well, Leonard Skinner's right. You got to realize those guys kind of thought it was funny. The feud was largely overblown by the media. Uh, Neil Young and Leonard Skinner later both expressed their mutual admiration with Skinner singer Ronnie Van Zant wearing a Neil Young t-shirt on the cover of their 1977 album Street for Survivors. People don't realize that that's what he did. And Neil Young has actually performed Sweet Home Alabama live on more than one occasion, which is great. When Neil Young took the stage to play the song Helpless at the band's 1976 farewell concert, which was documented in the Martin Scorsese film The Last Waltz, he was a bit under the, uh, uh, yeah, the influence of the drugs. He <laughs> performed with a good-sized rock of cocaine stuck in his nostril. Yeah, the band's drummer, Levon Helm, wrote in his memoir that uh, after Neil's manager complained to Scorsese, he and his crew had to go to the special effects people to get help developing what they called a traveling booger mat that kind of blocked out 
Neil Young's nostril in post-production for the film. Well, problem solved. <laughs> That's insane. You're performing and you got a giant rock of coke in your nose. Oh my God, that is great. Neil is, of course, widely regarded as the godfather of grunge in part due to his pioneering use of feedback and distortion, and of course, his love of flannel shirts. He's worked with numerous artists over the years, including uh, many times with Pearl Jam, and it was Eddie Vedder who inducted Neil Young into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1995. He was honored a second time when Buffalo Springfield was inducted two years later in 1997. Neil Young has never allowed his songs to be used in commercials. And despite his well-recognized career and a passionate fan base, Heart of Gold is his one and only song to top the charts in the U.S. You probably don't know who Patricia Boughton is, but back in 1990, she filed a lawsuit against Rod Stewart claiming that a uh, football, or here in the United States, we call them soccer balls, he kicked into the crowd during a concert, uh, had ruptured a tendon in her middle finger. She put her hands up to catch one of the soccer balls. Now, this is something that Rod Stewart has been doing for years at the end of his show. He gets a bunch of soccer balls, and he kicks them off the stage into the crowd. So you've got a pretty kick-ass souvenir from Rod Stewart if you catch one. Well, it ruptured a tendon in Patricia Boughton's middle finger. Now, as a result, she claims that the injury had made sex between her and her husband <laughs> difficult. It was her middle finger on her left hand, by the way. Now, Boughton's distress was shared by her husband, Stephen, who added his own claim of loss of companionship to the lawsuit. And he said that after the injury, it was very difficult for the couple to get into sexual activity. It was her middle finger on her left hand. Anyway, as he put it, if she hit that hand on something, it was all over. Wow. The Boughtons, who ended up divorcing later, ultimately settled for a $17,000 judgment, less than the $75,000 they were originally seeking, and certainly not enough to convince Rod Stewart to stop kicking soccer balls into the crowd at the end of every concert. He's since been threatened with legal action by a number of fans over the years, including one who said he had difficulty hanging onto his job after having his little finger snapped by the reckless and stupid incident, and another who claimed one of Stewart's balls broke his nose. In other words, if you go see Rod Stewart, pay attention at the end of the show when he starts kicking soccer balls into the crowd and be good at catching. This week back in 1969, Janis Joplin was arrested during a gig in Tampa after bad-mouthing a policeman and using vulgar and indecent language. You see, back in 1969, this didn't fly. Obviously, Jim Morrison had his trouble in Miami uh, around the same time period. Joplin became upset after police moved into the hall, forcing fans to move back to their seats. Go sit down. That's what the cops did back then. Well, as the singer left the stage, she confronted a detective, calling him a son of a bitch, and told him she would kick his face in. Well, she was later released on $500 bail. Happy birthday to Chad Kroger. Yeah, you know him as the uh, singer and guitarist for the band Nickelback, born this week in 1974. Of course, they're from Canada. And uh, Nickelback, okay, keep with me now. They had the 2002 How to Remind You hit, and of course, their breakthrough album in 2001, Silver Side Up. Now, Nickelback, again, stay with me for a second, is one of the most commercially successful Canadian groups. They've sold 
more than 50 million albums worldwide. And over 8 million people have purchased a ticket to one of their concerts over the years, thus making them, on paper, very successful. That means Nickelback is huge, but as long as their success continues to go, so does the hate for Nickelback. Why? I have no idea. Actually, they had a ton of hits, and they're great in concert. I've seen them a couple times, and they kill it live every single time. They're great live. The problem is, you kind of don't want to be seen going in or out of a Nickelback show because you'll get bagged on by your pals. Part of the problem is that Nickelback sold millions of records in a fairly short period of time, so they suffered a lot of overexposure. Remember, it's early 2001, and that's when they started to get success. Well, think of it this way. Nirvana came out in the early 1990s, and then, of course, you had in the mid-90s copycat bands, and then you had copycat bands of those copycat bands, and so on and so forth. So by the time you get to 2001, there are copycat bands five generations down the road, and Nickelback got thrown into the group with, like, Creed and Three Doors Down. So there you go. Overexposure and just being the same thing over and over again at the end of the day made it a very big problem. Now, if you ask anyone why they dislike Nickelback, they really can't give you a, a, a good reason. You, you know, just saying, oh, they suck. Well, first of all, never say a band or artist sucks unless they literally can't play their instruments and sing. Nickelback doesn't suck. They're actually very good. You just don't happen to like them. Why don't you like them? Well, some people blame the group's very generic rock sound. Fair enough. Others say their lyrics suck. Okay, some just detest Chad Kroger's ramen noodle-esque hair. <laughs> People hate Chad Kroger's face. I think that's the problem. You know what the worst thing about this is? I've met and interviewed Chad Kroger a couple of different times. He's an awesome dude. Like, if you sat down with him, you'd drink beers with him, and he's just the coolest dude ever. After Nickelback performs, usually they'll hang out backstage. They'll throw mini parties for family and friends and backstage guests. They put up a small bar, and Chad Kroger gets behind the bar and bartends for everyone at the party after their shows. He's a cool, cool dude, but people hate the guy's face. And I guess, you know what, when you look at him in his videos, I guess that's uh, something that you can kind of agree on, right? Now, I'm sure he doesn't mind too much as he counts his millions of dollars every single day. Up until recently, he owned a 20,000-square-foot mansion that had two pools, a recording studio, and an indoor hockey rink. I'm sure he'll be fine. This week in 1968, the Jimi Hendrix Experience went to number one on the album charts with their third and final studio album called Electric Ladyland. Now, the double album... Is obviously it's awesome. It's got Crosstown Traffic, Voodoo Child, and a version of Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. Now, Hendrix expressed major displeasure and embarrassment with the Naked Lady cover. Go back and look at that. The Naked Lady's on the cover with Hendrix. In fact, that got banned in the United States because, you know, here in the U.S., we just can't have the nudity, right? They used an alternate cover. In fact, several record dealers and record stores labeled the cover as pornographic. Either way, it went on to do okay. John Lennon was enjoying his success with the number one single called Whatever Gets You Through the Night this week in 1974. 
Elton John played on the session and made a deal with John Lennon that if the song reached number one, then John Lennon would have to appear on stage live with Elton John. Pretty smart bargain by Elton John, by the way. Well, Lennon kept his side of the deal and appeared live with Elton. They played three songs together. I saw her standing there, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Backstage after the concert, Lennon got back with Yoko Ono after a temporary split. Thanks, Elton John. Music Notes and More podcast is written, produced, and hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. Thank you for listening. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments here anytime you feel like it because, well, I actually read them and I will respond. Be sure to check out my YouTube channel. Just look for Jason Ginty on YouTube for other musical commentary as well as follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.